Hey kids, this is Michelle Carlo, and my show is Fish Out of Agua. Last week, I learned that sometimes you do get a second chance, if not at love, then at least keeping your family together. This week, I'm going to do a little roaming, learn Brooklyn is not America, and trip over my tongue battling my brother over my mom's almost dead body. Shit is getting serious this week as we near the end of the book and our stories, but let's get started with the good part and the B-52's Rome from Cosmic Thing in 1989. <laughs> I can't believe it's taken me this long to get the B-52 song on the show. We
And we're back with Fish Out of Agua and Chapter 50, Brooklyn is Not America. It often happens when one native New Yorker meets another, they ask, what are you? Which means, where are you from? As in, where are your ancestors from? And the other person answers, maybe I'm Italian and Irish, or I'm Polish and Greek, or I'm Jamaican and Eskimo. Well, maybe not so much the last one. And not just because it's not considered polite to say Eskimo anymore. I've been asked this question so many times in my life that declaring my ethnicity upon request was as natural to me as explaining to a disbeliever that yes, I was Puerto Rican. You're Puerto Rican? Yep. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. I don't believe it. Well, that's okay. Because most of the time, most of my family doesn't either. When I called Nadia, an old friend of Adam's and mine who lived in Paris, and told her about our breakup, she immediately said, You must come to Paris. It will fix you. I booked a flight that same day. When I told my family, they warned me, You better watch out. They don't like Americans there. Why don't you go to Hawaii? At least they speak English. And I explained that if I had a friend in Hawaii, I would go to Hawaii. But my friend lived in Paris. And I told them, if no one believes I'm Puerto Rican here in New York, why would they think I'm an American in Paris? And then I got my passport. The cover had a gold eagle with the inscription, The United States of America. I flipped through the unstamped pages to find a pastel, pa- a pastel pattern of more eagles and the United States of America, stamped again on each one. Now, of course, I knew I was American, but I'd also lived around so many people who defined themselves otherwise that I never thought about if I really felt like one. And it didn't fully register with me that I was a citizen of the United States of America, not Puerto Rico and not just New York City, until I was preparing to leave the country. A couple of Mondays later, Nadia met me at the Gaul airport and handed me a metro map and the keys to her apartment. Au revoir, Michelle, she said. I see vous in the Friday. She was running to catch her own commuter plane as her job had suddenly called her to a conference in Dijon for nearly the entire week I would be there. It seemed Paris would be fixing me solo. I'd practiced speaking French before I left New York but upon exiting the plane, realized that the 50 words I'd struggled to memorize meant nothing when spoken with an accent so horrendous it sounded like a cross between Carmen Miranda and Chewbacca, a squawk so unintelligible the words were stripped of all meaning. So I decided to once and for all to clamp down on my natural vociferousness and speak as little as possible. Why not? I didn't know anybody really besides Nadia. And I wasn't in Paris to make friends. I was here to be fixed. Paris was absolutely, amazingly, and arrestingly breathtaking and beautiful. Beauty was everywhere. The leaves falling to the pavement were wistful swatches of the most perfect fall colors I had ever seen. The stray Le Mongrel, licking its parts in a refuse-strewn doorway, exhibited a style and grace that belied both the location and the act. And I witnessed more than once two messieurs, 
what back in New York I would have called bums, lounging at a metro station, holding une discussion over a bottle of Bordeaux, complete with glassware and corkscrew. On the first evening of my trip, I went to the rooftop café of La Samaritaine department store, as Nadia had recommended. Pont Neuf was on one side, and the Ile Saint-Louis on the other. And in front of me, a small plat de charcuterie, an ice-cold glass of Sancerre, and the beginnings of my first Parisian twilight. Ah, department stores with bars on the roof. I could like it here. I sat at the cheek, little bistro table, guzzling the view instead of the wine, as uncharacteristic for me as keeping silent, when I overheard two words I wasn't expecting to hear. Bud Light. I turned around and saw a group of what could only be, and I apologize for saying this, please don't hold it against me, but they had to be Midwesterners. You know the types. Middle-aged women, stereotype. Middle-aged women with bleached blonde hair and teenage girls with still blonde hair, all sporting brand-new acid wash jean outfits and brand-new white Reebok high-top sneakers. Well, I hadn't seen acid-washed denim since the 1990s or a pair of double-strap Velcro Reeboks since the 1980s, and I didn't think I would ever see either again, but there they were. The world's last surviving pairs of De La Soul three feet high and rising denim jeans and Flashdance Maniac sneakers. I watched with silent amuse at the women's surprised expressions when they couldn't get either cheeseburgers or Budweiser and made their displeasure quite clear in English. One of the girls said, Mom, why don't you just use your phrase book? To which Mom answered, Oh, they all speak English. They just don't want to. I tried not to look at them. But then the girls wanted to go downstairs and shop for makeup. But the mom said, No, the store is closing. And I turned around and said, Pardon, s'il vous plaît, le store is open tonight until the nine. The girls whooped and hollered and ran off while their mothers gave me dirty looks, which got even dirtier after the waiter told them, Madame, the bar is closing, you must to leave. What, what, what about our children? they asked. That is not my concern. You must to go. Now, the waiter replied. The moms left as loudly as they had arrived, and I was disappointed. Well, not to see them leave, but because I had wanted to see the sunset. I asked the waiter, Vous êtes fermeture? Are you closing? Rhyming fermeture with temperature, because I can't pronounce French. And I cringed as I waited for him to throw me out as well. But miraculously, he just said, Oh, no, mademoiselle. I want the Le Americain to go. Would vous care for another glass? He answered me in English. It seemed the mom and my family were at least partially correct about the French not liking Americans. Well, no matter. We, oui, I triumphantly answered. S'il vous plaît, merci. Puerto Ricans in Paris won. Bleached blonde tourists, nothing. Ding! Five days later, I was leaning against a pillar, smoking and waiting for the metro. I was on my way to meet Nadia for our first dinner together. In the days since my first aperitif at La Samaritaine, I had walked through the catacombs, seen the Mona Lisa, and more art, art that my brain could even begin to process. I had climbed every last step to the tops of the Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame de Paris, and Sacré-Cœur. I sampled crepes marron in La Marais, ate pommes frites in Les Halles, and experienced more than one Turkish toilet. 
I was beginning to relax for the first time all year. I was dressed all in black except for a sparkly green scarf and Nadia's très chic cheetah print umbrella. My hair was slicked back into a tight ponytail and my face was naked except for freckles, winged black eyeliner, and red lipstick. I caught my reflection in the window and thought I looked pretty good, especially while practicing my très insouciant French inhale. And there was something else I did, or that happened to me, that week. I spoke Spanish, unselfconsciously, for the first time in my life. My intention had been to speak as little as possible, but there were certain things you just had to ask for, and other than saying the bonjour, bonsoir, merci, and s'il vous plaît, I could not get my tongue around that damned French. But to my surprise, many Parisians I encountered spoke a little Spanish, at least as much as I did. And to my astonishment, no one pounced on me for using a wrong word or judged my accent. And without the pressure of a hypercritical titi hovering around, I found I was naturally speaking Spanish better than I ever had. I became so emboldened that when I couldn't think of a word in Spanish, I just threw in a couple of words of French. I called it Spench. I met Nadia at a restaurant in the Latin Quarter. It was one of the oldest traditional bistros in Paris, she said. And as we caught up with each other and looked at our menus, a group of women walked in whose resemblance to the moms from the La Saramaritaine store was uncanny. And it took a couple of minutes for me to realize that they were not the same moms from that rooftop bar. They sat close by Nadia and me, close enough so that we could hear them order. And just like the group from La Samaritaine, they complained that there was nowhere in Paris for them to get a cheeseburger and a beer. And when the waiter said, quite truthfully, if they wanted a burger, why didn't they go to Les McDonald's? One of them said, well, we didn't fly 3,500 miles to go to McDonald's. I watched as the waiter walked back to the bar, whispered to another waiter, gestured at the group, and mimed spitting in his hand. Now, you don't need to be fluent in any language to know what miming a hock of spit into the palm of your hand means. And I have to admit, I kind of understood the waiter's attitude at first. My initial reaction was to toss my glittery scarf and roll my winged eyes at them. But then a thought came to me, unbidden. Instead of seeing a group of rude, clueless tourists, I saw myself. It was kind of like an acid flashback, only instead of seeing trails, I recalled the taunts and slurs I had endured throughout my life. And suddenly I, I felt the need to defend all of us. It was a matter of honor, of principle. I muttered to myself, ah, I don't care how stupid they are, you skinny French fuck. And Nadia looked up from a menu in surprise and said, Michel, have you gone fool? But before she could stop me, I walked right towards the waiter and went right up to him. The bathrooms are on the right, he said. The bathroom is on the right. Wait, wait, vous? Hablo English? I asked. I was completely caught off guard as this restaurant was not one of those un tourist traps. Oh, yes, quite well. We all speak the English. We just don't want to. I looked at the bleached blondes. Where had I heard that before? I was totally confused now. 
but I was determined to complete my mission, and I continued speaking in English. Yeah, well, those people over there, I, I heard what you said, and I saw what you did, and you, you, you cannot spit in their food. Why do you care? He sneered. Because I, I grasped the words and spluttered. Because, because, because I'm American too. You, <laughs> you are no American. What are you? Where are you from? All my life I'd suffered this question, but this time it was different. It wasn't as if we could sit at a table over a bottle of Lillet or Fundador and I could tell him about the island of Puerto Rico and about how it was a cultural stew where everyone was a mix of the conquered and the conquerors. There wasn't time for me to explain about Nueva York, La Parata, and Pecas, the five different words for your behind, the politics of panties, papas de sofas, or where are you from? The waiter asked again, louder. I didn't know what to answer. And then, the part of me that remembered how surprised I was to see the United States of America on my passport kicked in. And I didn't even think. It just came right out. I'm from Brooklyn. Brooklyn! The waiter took a full breath and snorted. Bah! Brooklyn is not America. And he turned on his heels. But not before I swore I saw a glint of amuse in his eyes. I don't know what the bleach blondes ate, but I went back to Nadia and our lapan and moutade and anglais avec pomfrit. I would later learn lapan was rabbit and anglais, the anglais was cheval, horse steak, with the potatoes fried in horse fat, the specialité des moissons. It was the best steak, bunny, and french fries I've ever had. Brooklyn Avenger, one million. Snooty waiter, nothing. I left Paris full of excellent food and a freeing feeling, both of which I had just tasted for the first time. From that day forward, I would never again be self-conscious about my Spanish or lack of it. And whenever I was asked where I was from, the answer was now and forevermore, Brooklyn. I've been to a few more places in Europe since then. I've even been to Puerto Rico and walked down the same streets Grandpa Ezequiel and Grandma Izzy walked. But it was in Paris where I learned that being from Brooklyn could save me from, as I would say in Spanish, uno escupo in votre coffee. I can't say Paris fixed me, but something in me was shifting. You heard De La Soul's Change and Speak from their 1989 album, Three Feet High and Rising, underneath that story. And please accept my apologies for mangling French. Oh, my God. You know, it's really funny how, like, my I can speak English with a Latin accent, but my Spanish sounds, like, so American. Anyway, it's now it's time for Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. We're getting all musical, artsy, and theatrical like that with this week's guest. She's a folklorist, a curator, an artistic director, and, well, why don't I just let her tell you? (laughs) Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week. I am sitting here in the basement, the snuggly basement of... the City Lore Museum and Gallery on East First Street in the East Village with someone who I think is a cultural influencer and leader. Please welcome Elena Martinez. 
Hi, hi, Michelle. It's really good to be here, sit here, and talk with you today. Great. I mean, I'm so I, I really, really, really wanted to speak with you, and I'm so glad that I'm getting you right now, even though there's only like six episodes left until the season's over. I can't believe it. So, Elena, I've been working with you for like at least five or six years now, and I can't for the life of me remember how we met. Well, um, someone I, uh, someone that we know in common, Robin Fisher, I think it was, who oh. you know through a family member, someone had mentioned, oh, Elena, you might really be interested in this book, Fish Out of Agua, about this woman, you know, woman who's Puerto Rican and grew up in the Bronx with red hair, and I was like, oh, wow, you know, I have red hair only through henna, but, um, but I'm Puerto Rican from the Bronx, and kind of feeling that, you know, this idea of not totally fitting in, I was born in the Bronx, and I'm only half Puerto Rican, and then we moved out of the Bronx, so... I grew up upstate in Dutchess County, but then I came back to the Bronx to work. So there's sort of like, um, you know, I wasn't always sort of totally engulfed in my in my heritage. So, um, so I was like, oh, I thought your book would um, would speak to me oh, in that way. Okay. And then I read the book, and then um, we, um, I am the co-artistic director of the Bronx Music Heritage Center as well in the Bronx. And um, Bobby Sanabria, the jazz musician, is also the artistic director there. And together we put on programming, and we're always doing. Music is the focus, but we do all kinds of programming, you know, film screenings, poetry readings, and we had a book reading, and I invited you, and another coincidence, I invited this other poet from the Bronx, Annie Lanzalato, yes. who it turns out you guys grew up in the same neighborhood. So but we didn't know each other. And you didn't know it until you guys came there. So yeah. it was sort of nice, all these sort of connections, when I first heard about you, your book, sort of brought all these people who knew each other, but didn't know they knew each other all together. So That's kind of like Twilight Zone, freaky deaky. I mean, full disclosure, when she mentions Robin Fisher, Robin Fisher is my ex-husband, cousin. So, like, yes. I'm, oh, my God. This is, like, crazy. So, that yeah, fish out of agua all around. I guess it was just meant to be. Mm-hmm. So, I didn't realize that um, you grew up in Dutchess County. So, what led you into a career in the arts to choose this? Or did it choose you? Uh, well, I, you know, I was, a, I was an anthropology student. I was an anthropology student. And then when I was in grad school, also doing anthropology, I always liked folklore. I was always interested in folklore. So, I was like, you know what? I'm here. I can take it. There's not too much few more, another year or so of classes and get a folklore degree. So I got a double degree with folklore. Where? Um, in the University of Oregon. Wow. In Eugene. And, oh, my um, God. And then I ended up doing a, an internship at the Smithsonian, and someone told me about city lore and, and Steve Zeitlin and the work that they do here. And I was really interested because I was very, very interested, being from the Bronx, and, and my family's still here, you know, a lot of my family's still here and, and coming back here, uh, I wanted to do something that was very urban-centered. And they're like, oh, City Lore, this great organization that's founded by folklore, but works, you know, works on like um, the grassroots culture in an urban setting. So I, you know, reached out and was able to do some internships, and then and then finally worked here. And I've been it's going to be twenty years this year. Are you kidding? Twenty oh years my that I've been God. at City Lore. Um, so you've seen this neighborhood change and change again. I've seen the changes, but I mean, Steve founded City Lore in 1986. So right. He's really yeah. seen like that, the that, complete change. That's 31 change. years yeah. ago. Oh my God. The changes, um, yeah. you know. Completely different um, neighborhood. So talk know. about some of the programming that um, you've seen come through here in, in your um, 20 years since. Well, one of the... There's na- such a diversity that comes through here. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's just, like, amazing that you guys are even allowed to exist, especially these days. <clears throat> <laughs> well, hopefully we'll be able to keep going. And, and one of the, the, beauty, the beauty of City Lore is that Steve Zeitlin, I think, as a visionary, um, visionary of City Lore, 
we were folklorists, and I love being a folklorist, even though I know some people think, what is folklore? And it sounds so old-fashioned. Well, what is folklore? And so, is it old-fashioned? Well, there, you know, so maybe in a, a very simple, simple way to think of folklore, it's, it's cultural, aesthetic expressions, cultural expressions, aesthetic expressions, but within a very, in a grassroots, and um, from grassroots culture and everyday life. And that's actually our motto, the, um, the everyday aesthetics of... of Aesthetics of everyday life. I'm spacing on the, the our little motto right That's now. That's okay. No, one, no, but, no, no, one's, no one's going to knock you for, for getting the mission but, um, statement like, but not it, correct. It's sort of like, you know, we think of anthropology as sort of like these large cultural systems that, that encompass all of culture. Where folklore is more of a little bit more... Um, a little bit more um, from my, a micro scale and looking at, you know, all the sort of um, the, the artistic means that we have in our life, whether so, it's um, in, the, in the way that you create food um, and, and the music that may, you make, the stories you tell. Okay. Um, and, of course, the music and, and things that we also think about. So like kind that. of like traditional storytelling. Traditional. And then, and then it's also in the manner of that, it, you know, it's also this idea that it's transmitted amongst groups of people that, you know, um, you know that we, we all... You know, some people might not think, for instance, that hip hop. Okay, you think of things like hip hop. That might that's some this mass market forms of commercial music. But young kids go on the street together and form ciphers and learn how to dance and 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 rap together. Right. So that that is, is in itself a form. And of you think war. about how it started. I mean, there's one part in Fish Out of Agua where I recount a memory of going to visit um, a childhood girlfriend of mine who lived in the Bronx of the Projects and walking through the parking lot with my father who had come to pick me up and seeing kids gathered around a skinny bug-eyed boy who had a turntable plugged into a lamppost. And like, you know, I was like being pulled away so I couldn't really see what was going on. But I always have in the back of my mind, was that the beginnings of it? I mean, it was in the, it was in the right. early 70s. So like, did I see Grandmaster Flash? Was that him? I mean, I don't know. Could yeah, be, could be not. And then I found out he did grow up in that same, in the Bronx River Project. So who knew? So that was like the really, you know, the beginnings of it. And yeah, and and that and that's how just you know this way that people that people work with each other, interact with each other, and, and create art all the time. You know, yeah. and it's not you know it might not be recognized in in certain other places like museums and stuff, but there is this there is this um, um creation of of aesthetic practices all the time. Exactly. And, and so folklore looks at that even and um I know sometimes we we people think it's oh it's just you guys that just study quilts or something, but it's like it's much larger than that. It's, it's all any everyone has folklore, everyone has different cultural practices. So it encompasses just about everything. And and, our, and at City Lore we've been able to sort of take that vision and that's why we were able to make a film like from Mambo to Hip Hop our film which looks at Latin music and hip hop. Um we we um work on we we have we have a lot of poetry programs that look at um, the intersection of um, lit literary poetry and and um, the oral tradition of poetry and folk poetry, so as well as you know just doing sort of you know um, musical forms like traditional Puerto Rican music we'll work with too. So we, we encompass all sorts of all the sorts of range of what can be considered um, grassroots culture. And all the um, exhibitions that I've seen here, as long as I've known you guys, like five or so years now, have been eclectic and amazing. You had this one exhibit that was about graffiti. They have the best bathroom upstairs. It's all these throw-ups and masterpieces from, like, the 70s and 80s. And, like, I was in there, like, counting all the people whose names I recognize, and someone's banging the door, get out of there, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm counting to see Dondi and yeah. Pistol and we like the Fourth and all these people. We like to think it's the hippest bathroom in New York it City. It is. So Except hopefully for... you should come this visit City Lord yeah. just to visit the hippest bathroom in the city. But 
also well, everything we do is also about it's just about New York City in itself. Yes, I mean, it it's is not about just New York City folklore, but also about the life of New York yeah. City. Well, like mm-hmm. the the um, graffiti exhibition, and then there was a Coney Island exhibition, mm-hmm. and then there was an exhibition hat, of hat. hats, the milliners, and then um, you actually did a screening about of, of a film that uh, the documentary filmmaker Heather Quinlan did about the evolution and changing of the New York accent called if these conditions could talk. Mm-hmm. So like everything like that people love about New York City to me and everything that people come here for, it's like you guys celebrate. And to me that's what makes you guys so cool. Yeah, and so that's so that's <coughs> what I um love about City Lore. And then in sort of like to take that even further to funnel it a little bit more specific, the work that Bobby and I do in the Bronx at the Bronx Music Heritage mm-hmm. Center, that becomes very Bronx centric. Yes. So and that that's me it's very meaningful for us. Like I said, I'm from there. Um, a lot of roots. I work, the space where I work is, is right around the block from my, both my parents grew up, you know, we're from. So it's very, um, you know, it's very meaningful. And the, and the Bronx, I, you know, hope, uh, you know, I mean, I don't know outside the Bronx. I know the Bronx is, is a symbol of urban blight, but yes. um, and it still has a bad, you know, reputation. But it's really incredible. I did mean, you the know Bronx that, um, yes, the Bronx is incredible. Mm-hmm. And did you know, not just because I grew up there for mm-hmm. I, I, a long time, <laughs> but um, did you know, I, I heard this on New York One the other day, that um, they, at this last cens- census, the Bronx was the borough that gained the most residents. Well, I because mean, oh, there's only place people could afford to live it's now. Probably, it's probably because the housing situation is probably the last yeah. bastion of um, re- relatively, relatively affordable housing. But that's probably change. That's probably going to change soon as well. But um, you know, the Bronx is just um, incredible. You know, musically, the the history of the music that that comes out of all the musicians who live there. And oh all, yeah, all, and salsa I mean, so, and hip hop and you know all the, yeah the, the music all these different musicians that live there. I mean, and right now where the it's the um, the largest Garifuna community outside of Central America. Wow. There, and they have great Explain music. Explain that for people that don't know what that is. The Garifuna um, are um, an Afro-Latino um, community that they're, um, they come from Honduras, Guatemala, Belize, St. Vincent's, and so Caribbean, Honduras, Car- Honduras, Caribbean, 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 Central, Central America. America. And, um, you know, they ha- they speak Spanish if they come from Honduras, English if they come from Belize, but they speak the Garifuna language, which is also... Um, UNESCO has made an, um, a tangible, uh, untangible cultural heritage, um, and they have incredible music. And the largest community outside of Central America lives in in the Bronx. Wow! So, so is, that, is that an indigenous language, or is that a actually, language actually, that was a lot of the Garifuna language is based on a lot of Arawak, a lot of a lot of the oh the okay yeah that, which is the, a lot of indigenous elements as opposed to the Taíno, which would be us Puerto Ricans. Which actually the Taíno is actually Arawak has a lot of Arawak elements as well in Puerto Rico. So that, it's all that cultural language from Central and South America. We're natives, <laughs> and actually we do an event every every December, Paranda con Paranda, which brings Garifuna and Puerto Rican musicians together because our drums are very similar. Mm. Our drums are very similar to the Garifuna. We have these the Garifuna have these big barrel drums, and the Puerto Ricans have the bomba barrel drums, and we have a lot of like rhythms and stuff that are very similar and dancing. So we always do this event that brings every December Garifuna and Puerto Rican musicians together. That beautiful. sounds amazing. Paranda con paranda. So how mm-hmm. come like that isn't getting played on radio stations? Like, do you have to go to Bronx you Bronx Heritage Music Center to actually get some Bronx Heritage music? I've actually even talked about this to people. I think radio, unfortunately, um, there's there's some there's some online radio stations, streaming radio stations. There's some, you know, smaller stations that are good. But you know, there's like New York City. Great New York City is like the home of music, right? I mean, yeah. you know, of Latin music, jazz, all these different forms. There's not even a jazz station in New York City. That's it's in, true. It's in Newark, right? That's true. So radio, we don't always have as much radio as we should. Good radio um, that we should, and so programs like us that we do in the Bronx, sort of, I look at them as sort of like the um, alternative to radio. What you're not going to hear on radio, you're going to hear great. 
Puerto Rican bomba from musicians that have won the NEA National Heritage Award. You know, you're going to hear you're going to hear that. You're going to hear great musicians from Africa. That there's a growing African population in the Bronx. Actually, right not too far from the Bronx Music Heritage Center, of musicians from the Gambia and Mali. Mm. There's also the largest Ghanaian community outside of Ghana. You know, wow. In, yes, in I've Bronx. heard that in the West Bronx. You know, right? So all that. So all that music. Yeah. Now people think, oh, the Bronx is just hip hop and you know salsa. Uh-uh. But now there's the soundscape is just um, becoming incredibly diverse with all kinds of different music. And so that it's just really exciting. It's an exciting time, actually, I think. That yeah. is incredible. So I guess what I want to know now is that what are, you con- what are your concerns of- about this beautiful scene that's been burgeoning and the effects of gentrification on it? Because the Bronx is getting more residents because it basically is the one place where people could actually afford to live. And I- I've been living in South Slope, Brooklyn. I'm going to be there 29 years in my, you know, all my by myself, um, yeah, this year it was 29 years. So, and I've been fortunate that the last time I had to move, I was able to find another apartment. In fact, I made a show about it. It was called "They Go of the Neighborhood," and it was about the gentrification of of South Slope. But like, what happens when I have to move again? And I think that would I have to go back to would, would the, the Bronx be the only place that I that I could afford? So, what are your concerns about all the beautiful programs and the music <laughs> and the encroaching gentrification? It's a double edged sword. Well, I know. You know, it, it is, and I, you know, I see my, the role that we have at the Bronx Music Heritage Center, at City Lore, too, my role and the work that I do, I see myself as an advocate for artists. An activist? A- advocate, I guess, I mean, I, anyone, I guess, who works in culture and is, like, trying to, you know, bring the word out there is an activist, mm. whether you might not consider yourself an activist. I th- but I try to advocate. I try to advocate Got for it. artists when I can. Got it. You know, making sure when we have gigs that they're paid well, you know, mm. making... When Important. I, when I can, I, if I can, if I can help them to get rehearsal space, you know, because a lot of artists don't have the money for that. And if they can use the space for rehearsal space for meetings, we try to help them out, you know, so in, in many ways. And so um, while the effects of gentrification are going to be felt, I'm hoping that spaces like the Bronx Music Heritage Center and there's other great spaces doing a lot of great work with um, the arts and culture in the Bronx as well, that we can... Um, at the Bronx Arts Factory, and there's just a lot of... And the Bronx Council visual, of the Arts. Visual art, yeah, the Bronx Council of the Arts been around for a while. There's a lot of different groups, some that, have, some that have been here for, like, decades, as well as newer ones like Bronx Arts Factory and stuff, and that, you know, we can try to work and help artists out when we can, making sure they have gigs and helping them, you know, with rehearsal space, you know, with, with time for meeting, you know, meeting times, and anything that, and any, all those sorts of, like, other... Um, what would you call that? You know, the marginal things that they need just to, right. to survive. survive. You know? Yeah, and our, our, our artists need that more than ever now because who knows? Not just it's not just about what's going on in the Bronx gentrification. It's about what's going on in the larger in the nation. You know, is are there going to be cuts to budgets? And right, stuff that, that's that's a that concern won't, that won't support the arts. You know, so and and people need the arts. The arts are what make life worth living. It's almost like you know, you take away my dream, I'm not going to let you sleep because people need to have that. You know, I I heard this I read this quote in all these articles that were coming out lately that people have been writing about because you know the the new budget Donald Trump's budget they think they they saw that you know the NEA and NEH were going to be one of the things to be slashed, and I saw this quote and someone said during World War II Winston Churchill wanted to make sure there were budget for the arts in in the budget for the country in and the people, middle of World, World War II. II. Oh and my god! And people were like, "What are you doing? We're like dealing with the Blitz, you know, yeah. everyone being bombed. We don't have money for arts programs." And Winston Churchill said, "We're we have to make sure we have money because we have to remember what we're fighting for." Wow! And so, if you in, in dark times like that, if you keep arts, we can we should definitely keep arts now because that's that's what makes 
us a great democracy and, and what we are, you know, as a country. So it, it is a very important to keep the arts. So, um, so that's, you know, the work that we do. I said, hopefully we can, you know, help, help the arts, help the artists who make, who make it, who make those, um, make all that. Hopefully we can, you know, be the support for them. That's what I see our role. Elena Martinez, from your mouth to Congress's ears. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Fish Out of Agua. God bless you and continue oh. doing the wonderful work that you do. Thank you, Michelle. You're listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Our next story begins with one of the many letters throughout the book, the book Fish Out of Agua, that weren't actually written, but were actually said. This is Chapter 51, Brother from Another Mother. Dear Michelle, you are not a bad sister. You don't have to be ashamed or upset that you did not do enough for me. But sometimes... I wish you could be nicer to Mommy. I know you are mad at her for something. Try not to be. She couldn't help being in the hospital. She couldn't help going away. What happened to her was no one's fault. I had to live it in Grandma's house then too, you know. And sometimes things are just the way they are. You have given me a lot you probably don't even remember, but I do. Every time you went to a concert, you brought me back a t-shirt, and all the kids thought I was so cool, even though I had no idea who half those bands were. And I remember you got us tickets for the Mayor's Trophy game and all those, others, all those other Met games, and I remember acting out Jesus Christ Superstar with you when you were practicing for the play. And I remember when I was in eighth grade, you came to my school and told Mr. Nenner that there was an emergency and we had to leave immediately. I started crying because I thought something had happened to Mommy, but we, when we got on the train, you told me to shut up. And we went to the opening day of the very first Star Wars movie. I remember all of that. But the best gift you could give me now is to help me with Mommy. I know you are married. I know you have your own life. But I am alone with her now, and it's hard for me sometimes. I guess I just wish you would at least come see her more. But you are not a bad sister. No way. No matter what, you do something else for me. You make me laugh. Always. Love, Kevin, your Anglo-Saxon Republican brother who looks like Quentin Tarantino. And now, Chapter 52 of Fish Out of Agua. Death and the Puerto Rican. I promised God that if my mother lived, I would never call my brother a fucking douchebag ever again. There are a few things you should know about my brother Kevin and me, born three years and 19 days apart. One of my first memories is of the two of us clunking each other over the head with a Nestle's Quick Can while watching the Three Stooges. I was four. He was just over a year old. A few years later, I ended up in the emergency room after he bit me because I wouldn't share my Halloween candy with him. A little while after that, he hid my Barbie dolls and wouldn't tell me where they were. So I took the driver from the Fisher-Price school bus and threw it at him while he was laughing, and it knocked out his just-growing-in permanent bottom tooth. He still has the gap. Another year, he jabbed a pencil into my knee. You could still see a spot of lead if you look closely. But I got him back, though. I stabbed him in the palm of his hand with a fork. Then there was an interlude that I like to call the watchful piece, which ended right after I turned 14. 
Kevin and his friends took my OB tampons up to the roof, unwrapped them all, and threw them over the edge, and starting, and started calling me Bloody Mary behind my back. When I found out, I was so furious I spit on Kevin. Twice. He punched me in the stomach so hard, I threw up. On him. After my mother intervened and cleaned us both up, I told her, I, I, I wish you had a miscarriage. And she answered, Why would you say that? You two are my blessing. I don't understand why you can't be each other's. Fast forward 25 years. Almost everyone in my family who is deceased has died from complications of diabetes. Not the kind you get in childhood, not juvenile diabetes, but type 2. The kind you get after the age of 40, when you've gained a few or 30 pounds. Maybe you finally quit smoking. Maybe you've been pregnant too many times. Or maybe you just like traditional Latin food. A hunk of fried meat accompanied by rice, tostones, and a double portion of dulce de coco afterwards. It doesn't matter. In my family, if you are over 40 and overweight, you get diabetes. And in my family, diabetes equals death. All my grandparents had it. Diti Carmen had it. And now, my father had it. My father had smoked non-filtered camels from the age of 15 until 45 when a doctor told him, quit smoking today or drop dead tomorrow. My dad quit that same day, but over the next 10 years, his weight went from a slightly chubby 190 pounds to a definitely overweight 230 pounds. And the diabetes that immediately accompanied his weight gain spiraled until he became insulin dependent. He became worse as I was preparing to move away from home for good. This was at the same time that Pasha and I had broken up and I was back home until I moved to Brooklyn. Yes, Brooklyn, as far away from the Bronx as I could get and still be in the same city. Now, according to traditional Latin culture, children, especially girl children, are supposed to either live at home until they're married or live only a block or two away at the most. The better to facilitate unannounced Saturday morning visits and mandatory Sunday dinners of carne mechao, arroz con salchicha, and queso blanco con guayaba. I had already flouted that unspoken rule by semi-living with Pasha. And now, I was going off on my own. I didn't want a traditional Latin life. And furthermore, I was determined that I would never have diabetes. I trained myself not to like sweets. I ate fish, broccoli, brown rice, and cantaloupe. I exercised, yoga, pilates, rollerblading, ice skating, or at the very least, walking as fast as I could. And I was so obsessive-compulsive obsessive about my diet that if I knew I was going to be drinking alcohol that night, I wouldn't have any bread all day because I wasn't going to get diabetes, ever. One morning, shortly before I moved to Brooklyn, my dad collapsed on the kitchen floor after his usual Saturday breakfast of two fried eggs with sausage, two twin donuts, and three cups of sweet café con leche. My mother was in the bedroom. My brother and I were in the kitchen with him. Kevin was finishing the same breakfast as my father, minus the coffee. I was having oatmeal, a banana, and tea. Kevin ran to the telephone to call 911. I went to the fridge took out the insulin, loaded the needle, 
and shot my father in the hip right through his pants, just like he had shown me on an orange. My mother came into the room and stood there frozen. After the paramedics had come and gone, saying my father was lucky I had been there, my father said to me, Little girl, if you leave, who's going to take care of me? And I said, I don't know, Daddy. Can't Mom or Kevin do the needles? Well, Kevin gets nervous about it, and I don't trust your mother. He gave a little laugh. <laughs> she wouldn't do it anyway. The meaning behind what he said escaped me at the time. Well then, Daddy, you just have to take care of yourself. You can't keep eating donuts and sausages and fried junk. You have to start eating brown rice and broccoli and cantaloupe and plain chicken and fish or you're going to die. My father looked at me and said, Little girl, if I eat that, I will die. My parents wouldn't visit me in Brooklyn for over a year after I moved there. And when they finally did, I spent the entire visit trying to convince them to move to my neighborhood. I told them it was closer to my father's job in downtown Manhattan. I told them I could get them on the list for a senior citizen's building, and I figured that by the time their name got to the top that they would be old enough. Plus, Prospect Park was undergoing a total renovation, and they could take walks or sit on a bench at the lake and feed the ducks and be totally safe. But my mother said, Parks are dangerous. You go in there alone? Mom, this isn't the Bronx, it's Brooklyn. Your, your brother only lives two blocks away from us. Why can't you move back home? What could I say? Kevin had become a very respectable, teetotaling Wall Streeter who lived two blocks away from my parents and liked it when my mother went over and cooked for him. I wondered why I spent so much time trying to convince my parents to move closer to me when I had intentionally moved so far away from them. Maybe it was because... I could see my father's diabetes was slowly getting worse, but eventually, I stopped asking. The years passed. I met Adam. I traded an artist's life for an actor's life. I spoke to my parents on the phone every week, but only went up to the Bronx for birthdays and holidays. I was okay with that. I was grown up now, and I didn't need my mother or even my father anymore. I figured they had their life. I had mine. One autumn Saturday, I took my father to the green market in Brooklyn's Grand Army Plaza and cooked him a dinner of organic butternut squash soup, sautéed kale with three kinds of mushrooms, and fresh salmon steak, a meal he politely pushed around his plate. Daddy, you have to take care of yourself. I know, little girl, I know. Would you make me a café con leche? Three sugars. No, Daddy, you have to use equal. Who will take care of you if you have another attack? He didn't answer. The next summer, he was dead. The doctors did an autopsy which showed that not only had he suffered a massive heart attack, but there had been at least four or five others over the past five years. He had never said a word about feeling ill. Ever. The cause of his death was listed as arteriosclerosis, as a complication of diabetes. And ironically, even though he had smoked two packs of non-filter camels a day for 30 years, his lungs were as clear as a non-smoker's. Soon after my father's death, my five-foot-tall, perfectly coiffed, groomed, and accessorized mother, 
who weighed 108 pounds on her wedding day and, after 42 years of marriage, still tipped the scales at about 118 pounds, stopped cooking at home and turned to Mickey D's, McDonald's, and Sarah Lee and Entenmann's for comfort. I tried to convince her once again to move to Brooklyn, but after the fifth turndown, I stopped asking. Kevin moved back to Kevin moved back home to live with her. Since he'd always lived near our parents, I figured it wasn't such a big deal for him. I was glad my mother wasn't alone anymore and glad it wasn't me who had to be there. Now that my father was gone, it was uncomfortable for me to be in the house alone with my mother. And not much better when Kevin was there, too. Kevin and I had almost nothing in common anymore, not even the Mets. He had defected and was rooting for the Yankees now. When Kevin and I were younger, I used to joke about his being a Republican. But now he was so conservative, the only show he wanted to talk about was Fox News and Bill O'Reilly, and the only thing we could talk about without arguing anymore was Star Trek. And sometimes, not even that. The first Christmas after my father died was spent in my mother's living room looking at photographs of my parents when they were young. The apartment felt empty without my father, and I couldn't wait to go home. As Adam and I were leaving, Kevin put on his coat and walked us to the train, something he rarely did. And I could feel something was up. I was right. You really should come visit more, Kevin said. Why? I answered. There's nothing to do here. I hate it here. Why don't you guys come to Brooklyn instead? You know I'll cook for you and just come to Brooklyn. Um, I'm going to get the tokens, Adam said, running up the block as fast as he could. Why? Why do we have to go to Brooklyn? Because you're the one that has the life? What do you think I have? Well, Kevin, then leave. You you can still live up the block or something. I would. And then Kevin said softly, I can't. Why not? That, Michelle, is the difference between you and me. We had at last reached the corner. You know what? I bit back. You're a doormat and a dork. And then I ran upstairs to the train. Then came April 1999. My mother, Kevin, Adam, and I were walking down 57th Street in Manhattan after our Easter get-together when all of a sudden my mother stopped. With a panicked look on her face, she said, I have to stop. You're walking too fast. I don't know how I hadn't noticed before, but she must have now weighed about 150 pounds. My once impeccably groomed mother had vanished. And now a puffy-faced imposter with a carelessly tied scarf over her head and an, an indifferent smear of color across her lips had taken her place. She stared at me wide-eyed. Mom, I said, running back to her and taking her hand. Mom, something's wrong. It's not normal to get out of breath from walking two blocks. Her eyes narrowed. I'm fine. You walk too fast. I'm old now. Mom, you're not old. You're just fat. Maybe you need to go to the doctor. Maybe you have diabetes, like Daddy. I don't have diabetes. I feel fine. 
Three weeks later, two days before her 66th birthday, Kevin called me at work and said our mother had had a heart attack that morning and was in the hospital. I immediately left work and went as fast as the Pelham Express could take me up to the Bronx and Albert Einstein Hospital, where I found her in intensive care, hooked up to what seemed like the hospital's entire inventory of machines. Mom! Mom! What happened? She could barely talk. The doctors came in and said she was going to have a double bypass operation at 7 o'clock the next morning. Her arteries were almost completely clogged, Plus, her blood sugar was over 500. My mother absolutely had diabetes. And she also had had at least one or two smaller heart attacks before this one. And just like my father, she hadn't said a word. My mother's third artery collapsed during the operation, but they were able to save it and her. Back in the cardiac ICU that afternoon... Kevin and I were only allowed to go into her room for 15 minutes at a time every hour. The two nurses who were there for the first 24 hours after surgery monitored the digital bells and whistles that were keeping her alive. Your mother is strong, one of them said. They have to stop your heart to operate on it, you know. After what seemed like a year, but was really only an hour or two, my mother started coming out of the anesthesia. The nurses had told us not to be afraid if she seemed disoriented as, at first as it was normal after such a major operation. And as she stirred and moaned, my brother and I had faced off on either side of her bed. We had passed the time all day comparing the Star Trek series spin-off Deep Space Nine, which I liked, versus the original, which he preferred. I remember we were in an intense debate over whether Captain Kirk would have been able to handle the gem Hadar, and then, without any warning, we blew up at each other. Maybe it was fear. Maybe it was lack of sleep. Or maybe it was a combination of his resentment for being the one who moved back home, and my guilt for not doing so. It's your fault, Kevin said. You shouldn't have moved so far away. Well, I wanted her to come to Brooklyn. You, you could have made her eat better. You shouldn't be eating all that junk either. Take a look at your gut. You're going to be the next one on the slab if you don't watch it. Kevin glared at me. Yeah, you think you're so slick because you're skinny. I know why. It's because you smoke cigarettes, and you and Adam probably still smoke pot too. I'm going to tell Mommy. Yeah, well, go ahead. Tell Mommy. I'm almost 39. I could smoke all I want, and I don't even smoke weed anymore. Well, maybe you should start. You need something to chill out, you, you, you fucking douchebag. At this point, one of the nurses, who, yes, sadly, witnessed all of this, said that she was, um, gonna go to the bathroom, which was in the room. For just a second, would we be okay? Yeah, sure, we barked at her. The other nurse said she was going to check on my mom's meds. Go ahead, we snarled. We didn't notice my mother was now almost completely awake and had heard the entire argument. A rasping, gurgling sound came from her breathing tube as her long, ingrained facade and sense of propriety tried to override her condition. I knew this because I could see it in her eyes. And I knew what she would have said if she could. Why are you doing this? Why are you embarrassing me? And then it happened. She tried to move one of her arms, and a tube in her side popped loose. 
blood oozed from the hole. And Kevin and I both freaked. Kevin ran to the door yelling, Nurse! 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 One nurse ran out of the bathroom, the other back into the room, and when they saw, I had jammed my finger into the hole in my mother's side. In a misguided attempt to try to halt the bleeding, they yelled at me to stop and pulled me off of her. I could have given her an infection, they said. And then they shoot us both out of the room. People say there is no worse pain than that of a parent losing a child. I may not have had children, but I can tell you that for me, nothing was worse than having my mother's blood on my hands. And as I went to find a bathroom to wash it off, my brother hissed at me. You killed mommy. I couldn't argue. I was the one who left home. Maybe that did kill her. Maybe I had killed daddy too. I found the bathroom and washed my hands, then leaned against the sink and made my pact with the Almighty. As it turned out, I didn't kill Mommy. That tube wasn't critical to her survival at all. It was just for drainage. And what had seemed like a river of blood was just slightly blood-tinged IV fluid. My mother left the hospital a week later and over the next year made a complete recovery. I have almost bit through my tongue on more than one occasion, but I have kept my promise to the Almighty. The words fucking douchebag have not been shouted spoken or whispered to my brother in over 10 years. Kevin is a good man and a good son, even though he is still a bit of a sci-fi dork. But then again, so am I. My mother's diabetes remains under control. Once again, she puts on a full outfit, age-appropriate makeup, and tastefully coordinated accessories whenever she leaves the apartment. And Kevin has done what I couldn't. He helped her to change her diet. She now eats both broccoli and cantaloupe, but she just won't eat brown rice. Of course not. No matter what, she's still Latin. Eating brown rice would kill her. You've been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. And for the record, my mom turned 84 this past Sunday before this live air date, which will be the 25th of April. And maybe she's not kicking it as high or as far anymore. But she's still with us, and Kevin and I are blessed for it. You're listening right now to Everlast with What It's Like from Whitey Ford Sings the Blues in 1998. And that's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn, where there's just two episodes left. And come on, somebody, sponsor me. Go to the Fish Out of Agua show page and go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and click on the green button. You could do it for as little as $1 an episode. That's the cost of a cheaper weepo, whatever. Hey, listen to Brooklyn Bands that are coming up next, and we'll see you next week.